A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That, hosted by me, Neil Delamere, and him, Dave Moore. Now, before we say anything more, this is the last episode of Series 1. Oh, I know. But to make sure you don't miss the start of Series 2, which is coming soon, make sure that you like this, subscribe, follow, download, all those things that you need to do so you don't miss out when we start again. Such is the clamoring from the public for this podcast. They're currently outside my house with banners. I noticed you said series and not season. That's interesting. I, don't know I did the... that deliberately because season right. is an American term and series is more of a oh, kind of this what are you? Term. This is anti-American stance that I don't know about. This podcast represents some kind of pro-European uh, gender. Let me ask you this. How do you spell the word color? <laughs> and therefore... And with that, he influenced? has snookered me. <laughs> <laughs> but with what color snooker balls? And <laughs> we should say, by the way, we are pr- proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. And last week, I told you about the Moswa people. You can obviously listen to that episode of previous episodes. This week, you're going to wow me with something. What have you got? Um, our imminent doom, uh, our certain death. Uh, how we're all going to cease to exist. It's a really joyous one to end the season, <gasps> wow, the series. Okay. And now, yeah. is, this a, is this a metaphorical thing? Like, you're really taking the end of season one yeah. really hard there. I said season no, deliberately th- there. Th- th- there's nothing metaphorical. This is literal. This is literally, how are we going to all end as a civilization? Oh. The reason we're doing this is because we're going to investigate yeah. just how much danger we are in from things in space. Because I don't know if you remember the movie Don't Look Up. The Netflix I do. movie Don't Look Up. Okay, Very so, good. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam McKay, the man behind it. We're going to be talking to the woman who is the science advisor on that movie. Her name is Dr. Amy Meinzer, who's going to tell us whether we are safe or massively endangered. I don't know, but I really want to find out before this series season ends. Okay, well, if she can tell us when it could happen, because I'm not going to buy Christmas presents, like, <laughs> if it's a good... 
<laughs> it was going to happen before then. It's just yeah. a waste. Look, default on the mortgage now, if we're all going to be yeah. dead in a matter of months, I mean, what's the point, you know? Yeah, I've got stuff in the fridge that it's used by dates is around <laughs> December as well. So if she could be really specific, like those mad people who believe in Mayan calendars and all that sort of stuff, if she could be really specific, like a cult leader, that would be excellent. Oh, well, look, we'll find out in part two. We're going to talk to Dr. Amy Minzer very shortly. Is all she about- like the mastermind about of space, like the, the mastermind, Dev? Is this what we're doing now? Yeah, yeah, this is what we're doing. <laughs> okay. Like she's the mastermind, is she? Like a special specialist subject. Neil has some news, some <laughs> wonderful, wonderful news, which in fairness, I wasn't sure when, was this going to be a series two uh, piece of news? But no, apparently it's going to be a, a, an end of season one news to maybe, Neil, this is a great idea. This is to hook the people over ah, into series two. That's why So I'm lay some it. breadcrumbs now. Okay. And then we'll get the full meal when we hit series two. So yes, yeah, that- you... You've mentioned the word mastermind two times. I don't yeah. think it's much of a secret as to what you're about to tell everybody, but go on. I have a, this genuinely incredible news. I have a black chair that I would like to sell somebody. Uh, yeah, let's let's pretend that this is for the benefit of the podcast, that I am, it's not my own massive ego that wants everyone no, to know. No, no, I no. just did mastermind. Countdown and mastermind in the space of a couple of weeks, Dave. Bucket list of quizzes almost like, complete. How the hell? I mean, and what's amazing is, they don't know that letting you on to these TV shows <laughs> is feeding this ego, this factastical ego that you have. <laughs> I can just imagine you in that black chair. Whatever about this, look, specialist subject, Neil, yeah. I've no doubt that you will ace that no matter. But I just, I would just love to see the general knowledge because I know for a fact that there's no man in my life who prides himself more <laughs> on his ability to out general knowledge everyone else. So I would love to see that. Right, right. Well, I can't out, I can't, I can't out general knowledge people who are really, really good at quizzes. Okay. But I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm okay. I, I fancy myself against the, the general population. Yeah, so I did is... Vikings as, well, as your specialist subject. subject. Yes. So if you've seen me in the last while just walking up and down uh, North County Dublin or North Dublin just with headphones on, it was listening to a book about Vikings, reading books about Vikings. I paid my nephews and nieces 50p a question. I gave them books and they had to pick questions out and ask me 50p random questions. Question. The 50 questions 50p. were so old, you were paying them in a, in a default <laughs> currency. Oh, I made up coins themselves. I told them they were Viking coins. I mean, kids <laughs> kids are idiots, Dave. We know this. Um, <laughs> my, my nephews and nieces are quite clever, has to be said. And okay, so hang on. Ruse. So was it was your special subject as broad as Vikings or was it a particular yeah. Viking? Yeah. Viking? Neil, Vikings. too broad. I know. Yes. Well, I know that now, Dave, but I should have picked The Wolf of Wall Street, which was somebody oh, else's. Someone else's. Yeah. Which There's is just, a... three, it's just a three hour film, Dave. That's all. Just well, watch it a couple of times. Yeah. You'll get everything you need to know. Jane Middlemas was on. Jane she did Duran Duran. Right, right, right. She's lovely. Duran. And the winner of The Apprentice was on as well. Okay, so this is an interesting kind of ragtag bunch of people that you're going up against. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you. A-grade celebrities, Dave. Ragtag I'll be honest bunch with you. of people. I, I would be firmly in the Neil is going to do very well in this camp. But I realize that this is not something that we can actually explore uh, no. on this podcast. We have just no. wait and see. No, we can't. But logically, if you'd been absolutely... Dog shit. <laughs> you mean you I'm trying to throw Barrett into the final episode of your podcast <laughs> if you'd done terribly, terribly. Yeah, so I was okay. I, I did okay. 
Okay. Um, do you want to have a guess at what my special subject would be were I to go in? Um, okay. It, uh, can I ask you, is it... Um, it's not obvious. Like, it's not guitars or sneakers. No, not guitars or sneakers, no. Um, okay, okay. Is no, it... Quite... I bet you I know what it is. Mm. I bet you it's it's on a band, is it? It's on one specific band, is it? No, there probably is. There probably... I could probably do Metallica. Is it on Manchester United? No, definitely not. Is it on the career Uh, of Velcro Girl? (laughs) The career I absolutely thwarted. Um, Um, No, give me a clue. I I couldn't do Manchester United because I've such a terrible head for fixtures and results. Like, like my son will say to me, "Like, oh look, do you remember the last time we played Aston Villa?" And it would have been like three weeks ago. And I go, "No." And then someone else goes to me, "Ah, you're wearing that top from the 1984 FA Cup final." I'm like, "I I have no idea what happened in any of those games." Yeah, and also, like. I set myself up as you set yourself up as an expert on something like you got to pick something kind of reasonably obscure because yeah. if I'm a Liverpool fan and I then pick Liverpool and get all the questions wrong, I can never claim no. to be a decent Liverpool fan again. So, okay, so, no, I don't. I'll give I you don't a clue, know. give you a clue, give you a okay. clue. It's a television show. Oh, I know. I know what it is. Go it's on. Father Ted. It is Father Ted. <laughs> I absolutely would pick Father Ted. I am fluent in Father Ted. Really? Uh, yeah, there's not really a quote. I don't know. Like, you know, you often see those things online, you know, the hardest Father Ted quiz, 25 questions. And I'm like, yeah. bing, 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 25, 25. Where, where's the hard bit? Like, don't don't understand. Like, and obviously, okay. some of them are like, what is Father Dougal's second name? And like, you know, everyone's on that. But like, some of them are, you know, what is the name of the woman with whom Mrs. Doyle has an argument over the bill in the mainland over the rest? You know, there are questions yeah. that are definitely, you know, you need to know or... What's the label on the bottle of wine that Father no. Ted, Father Jack can identify by sound only? Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, like there's like I am I'm in there. I'm deep in there. So like there's there's somewhere between um, a fandom addiction, genuine psychosis, and then Dave. <laughs> yeah, I think so. The do you know what I think I'd I'd falter is like in the universe. So the related. So like if for example it was like. The co-creator of Father Ted, Arthur Matthews, also starred in a TV show, and so like I'd be like, yes. "Oh, that's kind of slightly outside," and I don't read really or or like the Hattrick Productions, who made it, also made a TV show for someone in Granada in 1980s. I'd be like, "Ah, lads, come on!" Ah, yeah, but I don't think they do that to you though. But the thing is, there's there's people who do uh, Mastermind, and they absolutely nail their specialist subject, and you look at them and go, "Well, fair play to you." And then the general knowledge comes on, and they're not great, and you go, "Well, I mean, this is two parts." Mm. Like your score is going to be two parts. It'd be Funnily like, enough, I, I find it quite hard to study for general knowledge, Neil. You know, yeah, I think no, I know. You yeah, just got to rely on your brain. Study for general knowledge, but if you knew you didn't, if you knew you weren't good on general knowledge, why would you do mastermind? Is my question. And also, uh, you to, can study for general knowledge one hundred percent. You have much enough quizzes. You learn yeah, the periodic table. You learn um, gemstones. You learn the <laughs> colors of the <laughs> of the rainbow. You yeah. learn the horoscopes. You learn Basically, the world capitals. The only qualification you need is: Have you ever answered one question correctly on University Challenge? If you've yeah. answered one correctly, then you're you're through. You're I got the first through. one right once and turned it off the TV because I wanted to maintain the hundred percent record. <laughs> Besides, the only reason you would go on Mastermind mm. of, for any description, whether you were good, bad, irrelevant, whatever, you do it because you want to plug your podcast. I so my question to you, Neil, no. is whether or not the host inter- introduced you as joining us now is comedian and 
host of Why Would You Tell Me That? The podcast. Yeah, no. Available wherever you get your podcasts. No. No. I didn't do it. But it did on Countdown, so hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, and what? You've hijacked, what, 10 minutes of this episode telling us about Mastermind <laughs> you can't even tell us about. Yeah, but you're going to edit it. it it'll, <laughs> be, it'll be 30 seconds. It'll be 30 seconds. There will be no mention of Mastermind. It'll just be you going, do you know if I ever did Mastermind? I'd love to do Father Ted in it, and that'll be it. <laughs> no, no, I'll definitely leave loads of this in. It's exciting news that everyone's favorite co-host is going to be on Celebrity Mastermind. Do we have a, a TX date, as they call it? Um, I think it's going to be November or December, yeah. November December. Okay, well, we'll be in season two slash series two by November and December. So we'll be back, by the way, we should say, in the autumn time uh, once we get season two, series two recorded and edited and ready to go. We're so excited for the things that we have planned for series two. There's so many deadly ones. Uh, we can't wait to get to them. So as Neil said, make sure you are following. Make sure you're subscribed to Why Would You Tell Me That on whatever listening platform you do because we also actually might release something in the inverted commas downtime. So you don't want to miss that. If you're waiting for Series 2 to come along, maybe there'll be something in the in the interim. So make sure you are following and subscribed and all those things, and we will uh, we will make sure you do not do not miss a thing. But can we move on with the episode, Neil, if you if you can park your celebrity mastermind ego for, yes. for five minutes? Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you today about space. Forget all the kind of difficult things to comprehend, like the universe is expanding and objects that are moving closer to us as a result of the big bang their light waves change and something called a redshift, which means measuring them is very difficult because they're moving away from the big bang but closer to us forget all that complicated stuff space smells of raspberries (laughs) (laughs) i didn't expect that (laughs) hold on have you been talking to some toddler who just wandered in <laughs> with a big white coat and a, a telescope made out of blue rolls stapled together. Is this a genuine thing? Okay, yeah, so what, it, okay, not all space, but there is something that we point telescopes at all the time, which is a massive dust cloud called Sagittarius B2. And the right. reason we do that is because dust clouds in space, I mean, I'm sure it's not a dust cloud, this is what we call it, but uh, but these huge clouds of, of, of um, material in space are somewhere where we can learn loads about space because they are kind of infants in some ways because things that have bashed off each other are still together in this cloud and we can get in and learn things so in there we point our telescopes a lot at Sagittarius b2 and we kept seeing a chemical that people were like what's what, what's that what, what are the you know if it's this and this it must be this so they came up with the idea that they tested it and went yes the combination of molecules here is called ethyl formate and they made ethyl formate in a lab and they ran it, you know, kind of did this deductive, you know, testing of it and see what it is. And they went, oh, ethyl formate, of which there is billions in Sagittarius B2, is the thing that gives raspberries its taste. That's deadly. So yeah. judging on, on the fact that there's so much ethyl formate knocking around, mm. we think that space smells of raspberries. And also, it's the thing that gives rum its very distinctive taste. So if you've ever had a rum and coke, that flavor, although it isn't similar to raspberries, is the the reason you taste rum the way you taste it is because of the presence of ethyl formate on the taste buds in your tongue. So if we point the telescope at another part of space and that that has the chemical composition of cream. <laughs> and then we were to somehow and hope somehow that those two galaxies together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a bit of a stretch to move galaxies around just Possibly. for the sake of 
of has Heston Blumenthal tried it? Because it does sound like something it he that we, he would definitely be into. Yeah. Okay. Space smells of raspberries. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm absolutely in with this. Excellent. Does it smell of anything else? Uh, no. Um. As far as I know, this is all that they've pointed their nose telescopes at. Um, okay. so far and this is what they found we do a lot of messing as well when it comes to space Neil like we send things into space and even when we go to space I mean you might remember there's all of the Apollo missions that have landed on the moon and, and famously and I think it's probably I don't know if there's actual footage of it I know there are pictures of it but I think maybe in in you know, computer graphics, we've kind of gone and, and, and made this happen. But um, some people would argue we've made all the moon landings happen that way. But uh, on Apollo 14, 1971, an astronaut called Alan Shepard, and I love this, informed mission control, who you would think would be across everything that could possibly be both in the space shuttle and on the lunar lander that would go down. Yeah. They didn't know this. He told them, lads, and this is a quote, I happen to have a golf club and a few balls. Hold on. So something that you assume is going to be planned to the nth degree Mm -hmm. for every single eventuality. That's what your man, uh, Chris Hatfield, he's always banging on about. (laughs) I've never panicked because they've run me through every single scenario. Yeah. Hey, Ireland, give me a few more quid because I know you love me, right? <laughs> and Alan Shepard in the 70s just went, I happen to have, like he swung by a local sports emporium yep. and bought a driver. On the way and, to launch day. <laughs> and and presumably said, can I have a go at a few rounds of golf on the moon? And that well, was... well, no, I presume he, because of the way he, he addressed mission control, I assume he told nobody. He just secreted them into the lunar lander somewhere. And then when he got down and he was doing the kind of, yes, we have uh, moved to the southern quadrant and we're doing this now and picking up dust and whatever. And then he went, mission control. Yes, what is it? Commander Shepard. <laughs> I happen to have a golf club and a few balls. Probably had to warn them if you think about it, though, because if some guy is on the telescope and somehow picks up this projectile being launched off the moon. <laughs> yeah. Depending on the resolution, if he if he if he's looking right at camera and there's a tightlist heading straight towards his head. Well, actually, he did. I mean, he, arguably, he he is the owner of the record of the longest drive in the solar system, not the oh. longest drive on Earth, obviously. But when he hit a few balls, he he did hit a few kind of and literally just tapped it and it went kind of a good you know hundred yards here, or whatever. And then he took a swing at one. Now in a spacesuit. I'm sure it's quite difficult to get full rotation of the hips, you know, to yeah. to keep your upswing like right at the the, the arc. left arm kind of yeah straighten so the left arm and then and then come through and then you know move and make sure your knees opposite lock and all the things that golfers talk about mm. torque and rotation and all this. I'm sure it's quite difficult in a suit, but he did hit a golf ball that went literally miles. <laughs> So, John Daly and all these lads who sit there and go, I can drive 500, can you? This lad was literally driving golf balls five or six miles on the moon. And, and he's not the only fella. There was another guy, and I can't remember his name now or even what mission it was, but he, he brought a sandwich. Like, utter, utter contraband. He brought a sandwich into space so that he and his mate, when they got up to whatever thing and they could take off their helmets or whatever would sit down and have a I think it's a bologna sandwich they ate half of it and the other half of it is in a museum <laughs> like lads are messing they're messing what would you bring to the moon uh, what would I bring to the moon I mean Commander Hatfield played a guitar in the space station didn't he but I suppose yeah. you don't you don't have that room you're like 
because you're out as well. You're out, you know, like putting. Really so you're on the moon. You're on right? the moon. Didn't Buzz Aldrin bring communion? Ah, stop! Did he? I know some people tend to bring laminated photos of their of their families. I know there's a, like there's a great photo of one of the astronauts, his wife and his two kids, and it's the most sixties photograph you've ever seen. But it's laminated and it's up there on the moon now. Did they go missing? Like it's very <laughs> unlikely that they're on the moon. <laughs> Was he just was he just put stuff up missing. just in case they were kidnapped by another astronaut? He just put <laughs> missing cat and a phone yeah. number. Please ring this number. <laughs> and the weird thing is, when they went back, four of the little tabs had been taken. God, nobody knows where they went. Nobody knows. <laughs> but the other thing we did that we did send into space um, was uh, we we made a gold record. And oh, you know I have about, heard this. about this? Yeah. So it's a golden vinyl record that we launched into space on a probe. Again, I really should have done more research. I can't remember the name of the probe. But anyway, I do know it. It'll be somewhere in the back of my brain. But we made a a disc of that contained like almost all of the languages on Earth saying hello, I think. It had information about Earth, about people and music. I suppose maybe the fact we were putting it on a record was one of the reasons why music seemed to come to the forefront. But a lot of music on it. There's um, Mozart, Chuck Berry is on it as well because it was it was long. Oh, I remember it was uh, Voyager, the Voyager spacecraft right. in 1970. So this is to represent the culture on the human planet. Yeah, exactly. So like they did that. Now my issue is like obviously they launched that in 1970. I mean, did Elton mm-hmm. John, the diamond wielding pop star, even have a hit by 1970? No. Think of all the people that we've left out of our people will come. Aliens will come back to Earth to say. Oh my God, guys! Who's where's Mozart? <laughs> They'll say, yeah. "Can we see Chuck Berry live?" We'd be like, "No, we've got to go to like a TikTok gig down the road, lads." So they missed out on Sting, yeah, really, police and the police weren't an option, and, yeah. And Giant Steps are what you take walking on the moon, which yeah. is sad. They missed that. Uh, they missed you too. They missed they missed the Water Boys. They missed important acts like uh, Bewitched. Bewitched. I mean, I've an alien. An alien has never knowingly that we know of heard. I look like me dad. I fight like me dad as well. And I mean, I think that's important that people should know I, these things. I mean, they so the seventies as well. They may well see Daisy Duke and think that double denim from the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> hey, double it denim. Then, no, double denim comes back. Like, no, it's in. It's in a cycle. It came back. Justin Timberlake and Britney yeah. Spears double denimed in the early noughties from Daisy Duke in the 70s to the no- so it's only and a matter of time as well be a bewitched as well in the 90s yeah hang on so look double denim is always in fashion so can we just notice uh, here and note that you couldn't remember the name of voyager but you were <laughs> able to tell me the fashion cycle of denim <laughs> double denim specifically okay. um okay well, one more thing this might be my favorite thing of all time right no, two favorite things. <laughs> Has, have you ever been accused of uh, hyperbole? No. No. But that never, is my ever. favorite question of all time. <laughs> in 2008, we have loads of r- space radars, okay? And yeah. space radars send signals out into space. So we're constantly, I mean, even like I work on the radio, even doing radio shows, and the, the radio waves end up in space. They just they, they leave the planet on FM radio and they just keep going. So obviously, if somebody was 40 light years away, they'd now be hearing broadcasts from 40 years ago. But that's what happens. Radio, TV, all the stuff that's broadcast over aerials and all those things that we used to use, they just would escape the atmosphere and keep going. Obviously, the signal would degrade over time. But anyway. Can we just say, if you're listening to the BBC from 40 years ago, uh, all of those people uh, were brought to justice. (laughs) 
he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, anyway, okay, so in 2008, we took very important space radars. And instead of sending the important signals that we usually send into space, uh, over space radars, they were, for six hours, were redirected to send a Doritos commercial to outer space. It was 30 seconds long, and it was sent into the solar system in the Ursa Major constellation. So they picked a random solar system that's like ours, and they went, let's send a 30-second Doritos commercial for six hours to this solar system. And all I can think of, Neil, is space dude on a planet in the solar system in Ursa Major who is super high on a Friday night and his entire sky fills with a Doritos commercial. And he's like, oh, man, this weed I got is really good. Because everything everything is a Doritos commercial. The poor guy's got space munchies. So, so, can you imagine if they suddenly got an upswing in their orders? And that's how we find out about aliens. We've been sending them stuff for years, like Mozart. Yeah. But that just that just didn't float the boat. No. And they were like, we're going to wait until something that we really like comes along. And then these overly starched <laughs> <laughs> potato-based snacks are beamed into the rears and that they went for it. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. It is. I assume, of course, that it's completely pointless. But by doing it, they got so much PR. Yeah. And this is years later. And... Idiots like us are still talking about this. Totally, that's exactly. They've, as they say in space terminology, mission accomplished. <laughs> ha, but is there any way they would prove they did it though? Is there going to be somebody from the Advertising Standards Authority who went? Well, actually, Kevin actually got on a rocket and went forty light years away, <laughs> and he couldn't hear anything. So we think the whole thing was a big scam. <laughs> Possibly so. We have to take their word for it. Um, the other one that I I love hearing about are I love mistakes. Like mistakes in science, particularly, they give us wonderful things like the microwave. You know, I mean, we've probably not even done it on the show, but the, the microwave was a mistake when a lad had a chocolate bar in his pocket and walked past something and melted the chocolate bar. And he went, oh, that was weird. Uh, that's dangerous. Oh, hang on a minute. I couldn't harness that and we cook food. OK, so that's the microwave. But if you were attempting to make the fastest man-made object, you would plow billions, nay, trillions into a hypersonic jet, right? Right. So yeah. those jets that go and break the sound barrier and go on beyond the sound barrier, and they're, they're heading three, towards, four, yeah, right. exactly. They're just, they're heading for speed as light, never going to get there in the jet, but they're they're doing what they can. And, and then the physics stop you because the structural integrity of the jet is no longer, whatever it is, you just go, you can't go faster than that. The fastest man-made object ever was a giant accident. Because... In the 50s, when in the 40s and 50s, when the US started going, hey, we should blow up nuclear bombs. Obviously, nobody knew what was going to happen. So what they used to do was they used to dig these giant trenches, like these big, you know, tubes, these shafts right down into the earth. They put a nuclear bomb down the bottom and they blow it up to see yeah. what would happen. Okay. And in 1957, they decided they would cap one of these shafts with a half ton iron manhole cover and they put it on top of like a 480 <laughs> foot shaft and they went three two one blow up the nuclear bomb and it blew up and it turned the shaft into i suppose effectively the world's largest ever roman candle and the man the half ton <laughs> iron manhole cover after the explosion 
was nowhere to be seen. Now, half ton of iron is not gonna it's not gonna break up into smithereens, but it's not gonna disintegrate. It's a half a ton of iron. It's going to possibly crack in two or three or four or a hundred, but it will be there. And we're like, lads, it's not there. Of course it's there somewhere. It's not there. So there was a scientist called Robert Brownlee. He was an astrophysicist who designed the original one. He said, okay, let's get some high-speed cameras and do it again. (laughs) So they dug a 500-foot shaft. They put a similar bomb underneath. They put a similar half-ton iron manhole cover on it. And in 1957, in August, they detonated the bomb. The high-speed cameras, look, at the time, high-speed cameras obviously weren't able to do the 16,000 FPS we can do now, whatever it was. But they barely caught view of the cover as it left the shaft and headed upwards into oblivion. Using the frame rate he had at the time, Brownlee, being very clever, calculated the speed of that iron manhole cover to be 125 thousand miles an hour (laughs) the escape velocity of earth is about twenty five thousand miles an hour this thing did 125 thousand miles per hour is the fastest man-made object in history and they've worked out that by 1961 it was beyond pluto so where is it now oh god that if you're listening from a circus and you're f- trying to figure out how good your human cannonball could be, <laughs> 125,000 kilometers no, an hour. miles an hour. Oh, my, like real, old school. Old school. Real business this from was, when we passed our driving tests. Yeah. How was that the fastest thing we've ever made? Because it was a massive accident and it was at the end of an atomic bomb. That's how come. It was at the end of a, sorry at the when end of an atomic bomb at the end of a tube that was attached to the atomic bomb. When you put it as succinctly as that, <laughs> and the, the, the I mean I just what love was the it fact. shaped like what so, was the was I, the cap shaped like was it just like a like a flat like a disc flat, like, a, like I mean I presume disc it was thick as anything but it was like it was reinforced iron half like it's like, like we've challenged the aliens to a game of ultimate frisbee. <laughs> oh God. That you do not want this coming into your because it was traveling so fast it couldn't even have burned up. It got out of our atmosphere so quickly it was probably <laughs> fully intact. I bet the Russians, the Soviets at the time, got the frames per second video yeah. and went. This is how the Americans are training their discus throwers. <laughs> we need to beat them at the next Olympics. Um, so look, that's that's my effort at explaining some of the the wild that stuff that has gone Can I tell on you in space. My space story. Go on. So my space story is: I went to the Polish Institute of Aviation Medicine. I got into a centrifuge that is used to train astronauts. Uh, Polish lads were great crack. They were kind of medical doctors and uh, you know PhD doctors to do with space, and uh, kept showing me videos of people passing out in the centrifuge because wow. it was used to train various different kind of air forces around the world. And they were like, "This is what's going to happen to you." And um, so they got me in this thing, and. I mean, fairly rudimentary test, like, do you get sick on a train going backwards? No, you'd be grand in this <laughs> space-age centrifuge. Okay. Um, and uh, have you ever gotten dizzy going around a roundabout? No, and he's just ticking off a form. And uh, they, I was meant to wear a G-suit, really. We didn't have yeah. a G-suit. And uh, they kind of spun it round, and I was grand. And they, I got to 5-point-something Gs. Wow. And he said, listen, if you got to 5.6 Gs, I think it was 5.6 Gs, uh, you could be a fighter pilot. That's the 
that's the kind of um, limit. Yeah. And I went, well, send me around again because I want to get to 5.6 Gs. And he went, no. And I went, listen, I think I know my own body. I've done 5.2. I can do 5.6. And he went, your heart rate was 180 beats a minute and you weren't responding to the things we were saying to you. Oh. So we're not putting you in the thing again. Yeah. Oh, my God. And you had no, yeah. you had no recollection of that element no, of it? No, I had no recollection. He was telling me how to breathe properly and I wasn't doing the breathing. I, I, I thought I was kind of taking in the stuff and I wasn't. Wow. 180 yeah. BPM. That is, that is carnage inside. That is really, really. And why were you doing yeah. that? Your Fitbit explodes off the side <laughs> of your hand, basically. Why, why were you in a centrifuge? Was it like a, some uh, kind of weird scientific holiday? I was making a, a TV program, yeah, uh, uh, about centrifuges, yeah. And the interesting thing is we were, I kept doing links, right, to the camera. And the lads, um, various different scientists from various different institutions were there behind me. And I was going, centrifuge like this is, like, is what Yuri Gargarin would have used to train, you know, to, before he was the first man in space. And you could see the lads behind me kind of going, mm, like this. <laughs> and they kept doing it in the shot going, hmm. And off camera, I talked to one of them and he didn't work for the institute, but he worked kind of connected in the industry. Right. I said, what was the mm for? And he was like, yeah, you said Yuri Gagarin was the first person in space. I said, yeah. And he went, mm, yeah. Oh. Yeah. First one that came back anyway. First one that came back. Yes. And I was like, I never thought about that. So. Laika the dog. Remember Laika? Yes, Laika. Yeah, Laika yeah. the dog. Laika uh, survived uh, for years and then was hit by a massive iron bullet, essentially. <laughs> While staring, of while that staring at a Doritos commercial in the sky. It was so unlikely. She, it was weird. She chased this smell of raspberries and then was just taken out of it by a massive metal bullet. Right. Well, join us in part two. We will chat to Dr. Amy Meinzer, the science advisor on the movie Don't Look Up, who's also the professor in the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona, one of the world's leading scientists in asteroid detection and planetary defense. That's all on the way. And why would you tell me that? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) 
Okay, welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That with me, Dave, and him, Neil. And uh, we are now joined by the professor in the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona, also a principal investigator of NASA's Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, otherwise known as NEOWISE. It is Dr. Amy Meinzer. Hello, Dr. Amy. Hi, thanks for having me Hi, Dr. Amy. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Although, you know, in some ways, you're like a scientific superhero because you are there protecting the Earth from imminent danger. But also, I think you probably know things that are going to terrify Neil and myself during this discussion (laughs) about things that have either come really close to us that we never found out about or things that are about to happen in the intervening years between now and the end of our lives. So uh, we'll get to all of that. But thank you for joining us. If Amy suddenly rushes off camera, we need to get really, really worried. (laughs) Yeah, she puts her hand up and some metal gloves start slamming onto her and her helmet comes on. She goes, guys, I have to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just looks up through the roof light and then looks concerned. Concerned. That would be a massive worry. That'd be pretty cool. Could I have those metal gloves? That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they can be they can be made definitely. Look, Dr. Amy, we are speaking to you because you had a huge role in a movie that a lot of our listeners will know, uh, which is called Don't Look Up. It's a Netflix movie, and uh, Adam McKay, who wrote and directed the movie, thankfully I think, wanted the science part of that science fiction disaster movie to be as accurate as possible. And so he went to you and asked you to consult on on this movie. So what was your role in that kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure Science Advisor is different for every movie or every TV show. But for this one, um, we really had a lot of different things that we talked about throughout the movie. So Adam was really interested in making a movie where I would say science is a is a main character almost in the film itself. And, and in this case, the, the point, of course, is, you know, to get the comet science more or less right, but also to really represent the point of view of scientists, especially scientists who have not so great news to bring to the public. Mm. You know, in other words, the, the, sometimes we have news to tell that we learn from what we're studying that isn't great. And we really need people to do something about it. You know? <laughs> but sometimes people really don't want to hear that. And, and so trying to you know, just represent the point of view of scientists who have news to tell, that was, that was a big part of the, of the conversations I had with Adam and, and with the cast. And I do think, having seen the movie, I do think it is one of those movies that represents science in a very accurate, but also a very real way. Like you, you, Obviously, with the scientists being key characters and portrayed so well by the actors you kind of realize that the, the the problems maybe that science faces when delivering news, good or bad, to the public, that, you know, your personality or your haircut or your jacket can put the public off in a way when you're delivering really important information that that oh, none of that stuff actually matters. Yeah, we're I mean, you know, scientists are human beings too, right? So and, and we have all of our strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and for me, I think that was another thing that was kind of important about the movie is that this movie portrays scientists as human beings. In a lot of science fiction, you'll see scientists kind of portrayed as characters who are sort of, yeah. you know, evil villains or kind of nerdy, weird, you know, kind of comedy figures, right? And so that, from a standpoint of a scientist like myself who wants to build trust in science, um, it was really important to me to work on a movie where, for once, the scientists are are, are just allowed to be human beings, right? Um, yeah. That was, so, that was pretty good. Do you have some sort, or is there an agreed scientific kind of media training? So, for example, normally if you give bad news, you one technique is to give massively bad news and then sort of leaven it. So, like, you're going to die in a year. What? Uh, no, it's, no, you're going to die in five years. Ooh, thank God. 
Whereas wow, this- I really, I really do not want you to be my doctor. <laughs> well, yeah, my bedside manner is mainly the reason I was kicked out of medical school. Uh, but you can't do this with something that will kill a planet. You can't go. It's going to kill loads of planets. No, it's okay. It's only going to kill Earth. Are you taught to deliver bad news, or is there a, a consensus within the scientific community? You know, I would say that there is, generally speaking, not a lot of training, or at least there wasn't when I was in grad school for uh, for scientific communication. It's it's and and this is you know this is where there's a bit of a rub for a lot of us, right? Because we we know the science, we know uh, we know what it means, and we can interpret you know what we should do about some of the things we're learning. But sometimes we don't necessarily have all the best tools at our disposal our disposal for for trying to communicate it to people. And so there's a lot of jokes about media training in the movie, and 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 those are are very real uh, because you know a lot of times we don't know the best way to say it. We we try. And you'll see there's a struggle, you know, uh, I think uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character is, is sort of generally better at saying it in a way that's digestible, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, you can see she quickly gets kind of categorized in the, you know, hysterical category and, yes. then, and then she's written off, right? So, um, so that's, you know, yeah, we absolutely struggle with it. It's hard. I mean, we, we use a ton of jargon and we often don't uh, even we do it without even realizing it sometimes and and that's not really very helpful because the jargon's really just a stand in for a bunch of other words right so it's a translation problem a lot of times too but honestly i think just trying to hopefully see the scientists as human beings who are are trying our best you know with all of our successes and failures hopefully that's helpful so look neil and i are investigating the biggest threat to humanity so given all of the things from sharks with laser beams on their heads to everything else that we've ever heard about in our lives. What do you think is the biggest threat to humanity? And is it something in space hurtling towards us and whacking into us? The good news is it is definitely not something in space hurtling towards us. It's okay. unlikely that that's going to be the thing. I mean, it's not to say that it's impossible. We can't really rule it out. Um, but I do work on this topic. And the good news is, is that really large global impacts like what you saw in the movie are very unlikely. I mean, first of all, we're here on planet Earth. And if you think about it, that in itself tells us something. It tells us that these big, giant global impacts can't be that common, right? The last mm. really big one was 65 million years ago, and it wiped out the dinosaurs. So they, these events can't be that common, or, or we would not have had time to evolve on Earth as we have so that's the good news is, uh, but the bad news is that smaller impacts can happen with greater frequency. And if we really want to understand what happens in say the next hundred years, we can't completely ignore the problem. It's not to say that, oh, this never happens. We shouldn't even think about it at all. Well, we can't really say for sure what will happen in the next hundred years, unless we go and we actually carefully and methodically categorize the asteroids and the comets, look at their orbits and just kind of do a lot of what I would call shoe leather detective work to look and see what's out there and just measure it. So that we can do. And then if we were to uncover something that was on a trajectory that would cause us some difficulty, be it big, small, you know, civilization ending, whatever it would be, what are we armed with to tackle this? Because I know, for example, again, most of our science, my science comes from movies, but in Armageddon, they send a drill team up and they drill into the asteroid or whatever. And Bruce Willis is up there and everyone's crying. And oh my God, Ben Affleck's gonna die. But then in, in Don't Look Up, the reality was that we had gone so far beyond that. It was like, no, just, we're not going to do anything to this. It's, is our best effort against it some kind of, I don't know, kinetic impact or something to try and push it off course? Or is there anything we don't know about that you guys know about? Well, our really best weapon with all of these objects is time, actually, because if you have time, it takes less energy to move something out of the way. 
the less time that you have, the more energy it takes and the harder the problem gets. So from my standpoint, as somebody who works on these objects, the best thing that we can do is find them really, really early. In other words, don't wait until it's six months out. Really try to find it when it's, you know, six years out or even better, six decades out. Because if you have a lot of time now, it it really just takes much less energy to to just alter the orbit enough that it'll miss the planet. Right. So that's so that's the first thing. Right. Is to is to find do surveys in such a way that we actually find the objects when they're years to decades away from any potential close approach. And at that point, now you've got a bunch of options, right? First of all, who wants to build a spacecraft in six months? Nobody. I mean, that's really, really, really hard. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, in, in the movie, it's shown that the comet is discovered six months before its impact. Now, comets really do come up very quickly. That is completely realistic. I asked Adam, hey, could we have more than six months to build the spacecraft? Because it's really hard to build spacecraft in six months. (laughs) He did push back and he said, well, you know, I said, can we have five years? And he said, no, from a storytelling point of view, that's pretty hard. I said, yeah, "Yeah." I said, you're right. Five years of design reviews is probably not the most interesting movie, you know, five years of WebEx meetings and, you know, the internet not working and all that. So Ikea would bang a spaceship out in five months. (laughs) No sweat. Well, you know, they probably could, right? And they'd give it a cool name too, you know, <laughs> like the Blurg or something like that. Yeah, definitely. So, so if, we, if we do spot it then, what, what are our actual physical options at the moment then? Okay, so if, if the object is, is small enough and if we have enough time, then the kinetic impactor that you spoke of is exactly the right tool. Basically, you just build the spacecraft and you try to bump into the object and push it ever so slightly, just enough so that it will miss and that's, um, that's being tested by NASA's DART. It's called DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission. Oh. Uh, and next September, it's going to bump into an asteroid that has a moon. It's actually going to bump into the moon of the asteroid. And it's going to try to change the orbit of the moon enough that it's detectable to observers on Earth. So that's supposed to test this kinetic impact technique. Uh, but that works if the asteroid is, is of not too large of a size and we have enough time. If you want to try a different option, you can try something called the gravity tractor, which is not a, uh, a John Deere tractor you would drive in a field at all, but rather... Oh, I was really hoping it was going to be a tractor <laughs> beam that you would just... Because, I mean, we all remember Star Trek. Oh, I just hit it with the tractor beam and move it out of the way. I wish we had a tractor beam because then I would never have to get up to go to the fridge. I just use my tractor <laughs> beam, right? <laughs> I knew we were going to mention... I knew you were going to mention Armageddon. I did not think John Deere tractors would come up in the podcast. <laughs> So if we have enough time, we could use, instead of a tractor beam, we can actually just use the force of gravity itself. Um, and you basically just have to build a really big spacecraft, something that's, that's big and heavy, that has a lot of mass. And you would sort of park it next to the asteroid and you would let the force of gravity pull it across, you know, off course. Of course, yeah. But that takes time. It's not fast. Yeah. So time, time, time is our weapon. Time is our weapon here, yeah. How big would a comet or an asteroid have to be to cause a significant impact on Earth? I don't go significant. Neil, okay, let's go extinction-level okay, event. Planet-ending event. No, no, no. I think extinction level is, is where we're looking because, look, I, I, was, I said to Dr. Amy okay. earlier, I, I think Earth will survive. I think, look, right now we're top of the food chain. We're the dinosaurs. We're top of the food chain. Boom. 65 million years ago, they were gone. We can be gone too and Earth will continue. So You I might be top of the like... food chain. I can't get a mortgage, Dev. <laughs> Oh, with this podcast, Neil, <laughs> you won't know yourself. But yeah, I don't think that, that that movie thing of like, you know, something hitting the earth and the earth like exploding like a supernova or whatever is going to be an issue. But Mammalian life on Earth, shall we say. There you go. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, these are these are from the perspective of an asteroid scientist. These are the questions, right? You know, how big is big enough? How big should we be worried about, right? So, so something that is quite capable of causing what I would call a global extinction event is about a kilometer across and larger. Wow. Anything bigger than a kilometer is really bad news for life on Earth. That doesn't sound big to me. I don't know if I'm wrong, but like that doesn't sound big at all. It's, it's not. I mean, it's, you know, a kilometer is not that large. And so, but the thing is, these objects really do move with incredible speed with respect to the Earth. And that's what gives them the ability to pack such a punch. And if we spotted it and it was a kilometer, would it potentially reduce its size enough in our atmosphere? Or if it was that big traveling at that speed, it's just going to plummet straight through and, and hit us? Basically, if something we so we, we know quite a bit about this now, because there was an impactor that exploded over Russia in 2013. And that object broke a bunch of windows, but it didn't create a big giant crater in the ground. Okay. So in other words, it was, it was large enough to create an airburst explosion pretty high mm. up in the atmosphere, but it didn't make it to the ground except in tiny pieces. There's lots of tiny pieces, but no really big crater. That object was about 20 meters across. Wow. So if it's a wow. lot larger than 20 meters, um, it can now it can really blow a hole in the ground. And, and we have an example of that here in Arizona in the United States. There is a uh, roughly kilometer wide crater in Arizona called Meteor Crater, uh, and that was formed by an object that was about 50 meters across. So it doesn't take a huge object to make a crater yeah. in the ground. You, you, the atmosphere is a very effective shield if the object's smaller than roughly 20 meters or so. But once you're bigger than that, most of it's going to make it to the ground intact. Recently in the news, there was a story about a satellite falling into the dark side of the moon and this is just on its trajectory as it, it came back towards Earth. I've often wondered if there was something that impacted the moon, has that got the potential to do damage to us if it, if it set the moon off its orbit and changed or if it broke a chunk of the moon off and then that chunk of moon hit? Like, you know, is there some kind of chain reaction there that wouldn't be very good for us if something hit the moon? Yeah, the good news is here, it takes a lot of energy to do something like move an object the size of the moon. The moon is huge compared to all of the asteroids, really. I mean, so so that's the good news. The moon is much too large for, for it to have its orbit altered in any significant way. Okay. That's the good news. Now, that said, we do occasionally find tiny, teeny, tiny pieces of the moon here on Earth, and they are lunar meteorites. They're actually, uh, just as you described, something at one point did hit the moon and it blew some pieces off of it. And these are tiny pieces that we're talking sure. about, you know, like maybe the size of a baseball or something. But uh, occasionally we do find fragments, little pieces of the moon here on Earth. In fact, I was just looking at one the other day, a lunar meteorite. So no way. a little chunk of the moon all the way here on Earth. We find little pieces, in other words, but it's unlikely that anything really bad would ever happen from that. I think the main concern there, Dave, I read the same story, is a Falcon 9 rocket, I think it was Elon Musk of SpaceX, wasn't it? Was, and now I'm not a physicist or an astrophysicist, but I think the main concern was that the moon would burst and then just fly around the solar system. I think that was the main <laughs> scientific concern. And then what happens is you don't get any tides and werewolves are very badly affected. So, um, I mean, swings and roundabouts and this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, you're right. Uh, um, is there a size, you know, between kind of the 20 meters, 50 meter and the kilometer size of, of asteroid that if it lands in water in the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, we can handle that. But if it lands on land, it's much worse. That's a really interesting question. And I, I would say it's, it's kind of a difficult one to answer conclusively because it relies a lot on modeling um, about what would happen. Generally speaking, we are right now searching for objects that are larger than roughly about 100 meters across. Um, we, we're doing our best with the smaller objects, but there's just so many of them that it's a bit overwhelming. 
So right now what we're focusing on is trying to fill out our knowledge of the population that's between 100 meters and a kilometer, because any object in that size range is big enough to cause what I would call severe regional damage, meaning that it could take out an area the size of Southern California. So, so for that, we really want to try to locate where most of those are and get good orbits for them so we can predict where they're going to go in the future. I suppose the, the only question we can really ask that's going to make us and maybe our listeners feel okay is, um, do, you, do you sleep well at night, Dr. Amy? I mean, are you, <laughs> I, you know, from, from, from the perspective of asteroids and comets, I sleep great. It's really <sighs> unlikely to happen. And what's more, we have the tools. If we just go do our homework and just go look for the asteroids and kind of do the really good basic astronomy, we can answer this question and, and not have to worry about it too much. Climate change, that keeps me up at night. She sleeps under a massive net. I bet you, a massive net. Just like the biggest trampoline you can buy, just upturned upside down, just over her house. Just to be sure. Uh, listen, Dr. Amy Meinzer, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for the work you did, first of all, on uh, on Don't Look Up, which we loved. And we hope uh, lots of our, our, our listeners have watched and will watch. Uh, but you are the professor in the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona and the principal investigator at NeoWise. Thank you so much for talking to us today. For Why would you tell me that? Thanks so much. Right, welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That with me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. There's Dr. Amy Meinzer. What do you think, Neil? Unbelievable. I mean, terrifying in parts, but good to know that it's the it's the unlikely way that we end we both know yeah. that we're going to set the world on fire or it's going to be a microbe or it's going to be monkey pox or badger pox or some something with pox on the end of it definitely and i mean look the, the reason i wanted to do this episode was to give you that sense of relief that the likelihood of there being a don't look up armageddon style extinction event is so so low that your episode of Celebrity Mastermind will reach its broadcast date in Ooh. the autumn. This oh. is this is the only. Re- I wanted to just reassure you <laughs> as we head into our hiatus yeah. that you've nothing to worry about. That was my main. I was going to say like, why would you tell me that? But it's it's about Mastermind, which is <laughs> which is it's, it's comes as a massive relief, Dave. I mean, like if the world ends today after that. That's that's fine. That's fine. You know? Yeah, I yeah. mean, we we we've all, as a as a population, I think we'll all agree that. Yeah, um, whatever way the mastermind goes, I think that is the high point of human civilization. No matter no matter what way it goes, <laughs> I think I think, and I think the other three people on the episode felt the same. Oh, I've no, and the host, I'd say, and and the the runners and the director, the floor manager, yeah. the makeup yeah. people. I would say they all felt like you know a key moment in human history had been witnessed. Yeah, it was weird because when I was on it, um, you know, they shined the spotlights on everybody. And what mm, I didn't realize mm. is um, my spotlight wasn't working, but because we had oh. reached the zenith of human capability, aptitude, achievement, yeah. God, he, oh, just, he actually himself. just lit me from a cloud. Wow. And, and you probably had some kind of like bioluminescence because you're such an elevated being. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, I mean, much, yeah. I'd reached Thetan level five. I think by the time series two comes around, I will have tried to rein Neil's <laughs> ego in check to some to some degree. I may not succeed, listeners. I may not succeed. But Imagine I will if Doctor Amy goes. We've seen a massive new planet. No, it's Neil's head. It's Neil's <laughs> massive inflated head. Whether he won or didn't win, mastermind. We really hope you enjoyed uh, Doctor Amy Meinzer's chat, but more importantly, really hope you enjoyed the entire series slash season one 
mm-hmm. of uh, Why Would You Tell Me That. Thank you so much to everybody who has listened. We know there are thousands of you, and we're so proud that so many people have tuned in. Thank you to everybody who's responded to us on social media, everybody who has subscribed or followed or done all of that, to people who've done fan art, and those people yes. who've suggested topics for us for the next season, the one after that. We're really, really proud to be in touch with all of you guys. And, of course, as Neil mentioned earlier on, we are proudly part of the ACAS Creator Network as well. So stay in touch with us over the uh, the summer break uh, before we come back in the fall. Uh, but we are all on social media. The, the podcast itself is at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. Neil is at Neil Delmer Comedy. He'll undoubtedly be changing that to at Neil Mastermind Genius Comedy or something like that later on. But that's currently what his Instagram is. I, I am at Dave Today FM. So stay in touch. If you ever see anything and you think, ooh, the lads might like that, you know where to send it on to us. And we'll gladly yes. be putting it together for Series 2 and Series 3 and Series 4. We have so many plans for the podcast. We are currently collating ideas from everybody. I have ordered special Dave and Neil trading cards. They're going to be one-off based on fan art from one of the people who sent in fan art. So we are probably going to, I think we'll we'll give them away. And you can come up with some sort of bizarre Dave-like metric for this. That seems Um, like a great idea. We are, I'd like to echo your very, very sincere thanks to everybody. Which is a rarity. It is a rarity. We've had a blast making this. Uh, you can really fake have. sincerity like the best of them, I have to say. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute joy to do it. It's been an absolute joy to found it as actually engaged to people because we, you know, we get those people who, you know, that did you see that one the other day? A guy tweeted us and said, I didn't get out of the car because I wanted to listen to the last few minutes. That's which right. Is absolute gold from our point of view. Yeah. So thanks again for listening. And we'll see you in Season Stroke Series 2. Take care. Buy my gigs tickets. Listen to his radio show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 